So God willing, today we're going to continue studying the book of Exodus. We've had um, a series of chapters um, that have been very technical, um, talking a lot about how the tabernacle is built um, and all the details of the consecration of the priests and how the, the vestments of the priests should look like and all the different parts of the tabernacle and the materials and the dimensions um, and so on. Um, so today we're going to conclude um, this part. Um, and then we're going to move to the next phase, which is now continuing the story um, of what was happening. So all this, all these events that we've been talking about in the last few chapters have been happening on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, where Moses went up uh, to see God and that God would speak with him and he would give him the Ten Commandments. And he would also tell him all of these other laws and rules and the building of the tabernacle and so on. So after this period is done, then Moses is going to come back down the mountain, um, and then we will see um, what happens after that. Okay, so this is the conclusion of all of the the laws of the the um, of the tabernacle, and all the people. Now he's going to speak about the people who um, are to work on the tabernacle, who are to make the artisans who are to make the tabernacle. It says then the Lord spoke to Moses saying. See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, indeed, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, uh, of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the laver and its base. These are all the things that we've already discussed. The garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests, and the anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you they shall do. Okay, so we spoke um, before about how God is very interested in the details and that God gave a very uh, detailed plan of how all these things were to be made. And he speaks about the materials that were to be used and, as I said, the dimensions and all these things. And who is it that he's telling this to? He's telling it to Moses, right? So he's telling Moses all these things that need to be done, okay? Um, so what do you think is significant about this passage that we just read? Specifically here at the beginning, where he said what? And I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold, silver, bronze, cutting jewels, carving wood, and so on. What is the significance of this? It's not exactly a work of man. It's not the what? The work of man? It's not exactly a work of man or entirely a work of man. Okay. Well, definitely it's not entirely the work of man. And, I, and, and what does it mean? Right? So like God first, he, he told them everything that should be built. And now what is he doing? 
He's providing. He's telling them now how you will do it. I mean, I, I can imagine if you are like Moses on top of the mountain in the middle of the desert with the millions of people and God is giving you this very, very detailed plan. At least maybe for me, my first reaction will be like, I don't know how to do this. You know, I, I, I don't know how to make these things. And, and, and how are, how are we going to make these things? And where are we going to get all this gold and silver and bronze and all these multiple colors of thread? And like, uh, like how are we going to make this? You know, you're talking about people who are literally wandering in the, in the desert, okay? But God, when he, when he gave the plan of how, or, or sorry, of what is it that should be done, he had already planned from the beginning of how it would be done, okay? So, for instance, okay, God here is revealing that certain individuals who are already there already have the skills necessary to make these things, okay? And they, it, it's not like God just gave them the skill on the spot. These people were already skilled. They were skilled artisans from the beginning, craftsmen from the beginning. And maybe you can even think from the perspective of those people, like um, sometimes we have an experience in our life where we are called to do a certain work or to do something, and we kind of like finally realize what my calling is, like something that I have been, been prepared for for a long time, and I never understood why, what it was for, until now, in this moment, I realized like God was preparing me for something, right? So here you can say from these people, right, that God is, is, is mentioning, right, that God had already prepared them from before. And, 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 and now they are ready to use these skills that they had already knew about themselves that they had, but they're now using it for the house of God. Like they're using it to serve God. And so God creates in us all these different talents and skills and, and even professional talents, right, things that we use in our career and so on, things that we've studied. And then we can ask ourselves the question, how can I use these skills and these talents for the house of God? Because God provides for the church, and one of the ways is through the people that are in the church, through the people that are present in the church that are already here and attending. How is it that they can support the goal and the mission of the church, okay? Um, the other thing that God gave and that he had already planned for from the beginning was the materials, Okay, do you remember what was one of the last things that God told the people to do before they left Egypt? He, he told them to go and take all of the gold, the jewelry, the, the, the items from the neighbors, from their neighbors, right? And to take them, right? And everyone is going to be very happy to give them whatever it is that they asked for. And then when it came time for them to leave Egypt, they took all that stuff with them, right? So even, you know, Something that, again, in the mind of the, of, the, of the Jews, like they may probably would not have thought to do anything like that or why they would need to do something like that. But God is already several steps ahead. And he knows that the people are going to need this, okay? Not just for the tabernacle, but you know, for other things as well. And so God allowed them to have all these materials. So again, you have these wandering people. Um, they have a mission. They have a plan. They have a purpose. They have the materials. They have the skills. They have everything God has prepared it for them. And now God is revealing to Moses, hey, here's the plan. This has been the plan from the beginning. I didn't tell you what it was. And I didn't explain to you every detail. And why is it that we needed all these things? But now you know. Now you know that there are people here that are going to be able to do this work. And there's the materials that you already have that you will need in order to do it. So God is giving us the gifts that we need to serve him. Okay, and this is an important principle. God gives us the gifts that we give back to him. 
So the, the attitude like that sometimes people come when they're asked to do a certain service and they say, I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. I don't have the time to do it or whatever excuse maybe that we might give. Just like Moses gave whenever he was called to serve God. Moses is in, in his own self-evaluation or whatever the case might be and all the reasons we had discussed in the past that he might have been stubborn to serve God. In his own self-evaluation, he said, I do not have what it takes in order to do this job. I don't have what it takes to be the leader of Israel. I don't have what it takes to bring the people out of Egypt. And yet we see now like that he was uniquely qualified because of what we see that he did. Because God is the one who worked in him. God worked in him, and he gave back to God the things that God had given to him. So this is, the, the true, this is true for us as well. God gives us gifts, and we give back to God from the gifts that he gave us. Whether that is literally, like in the form of a tithe, which he says, give me 10%, okay? Or it's um, in, the, in the terms of the time that I sacrifice to God, that I give to him. In terms of the worship that I offer to him. In terms of serving other people that he calls us to serve. In terms of offering, again, whatever professional skill or talent that I might happen to have back to God again. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now, we've already talked about the Sabbaths a lot. There's already been several times where the Sabbaths have been mentioned. What do you think is the reason that he is mentioning it here? So what is the Sabbath? Rest from work. Okay, and what did he just ask them to do? Work. Like he's just telling them all this work that they're going to do, right? All these people that are gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna set up the tabernacle. They're gonna make it, design all this. But, you know, it's gonna take you more than a week to do it, right? So on the Sabbath day, remember what I already told you about the commandment of the Sabbath, right? That you keep the Sabbath day holy. So just because you have a big project and a big job and a big thing, right, that you need to be working on, that is not the excuse to use to say, well, because I have all of this work that I need to finish, so that means that I can skip the Sabbath day, right? Because God himself, like, they are doing the work of God. You know, they are doing the work of God. Sometimes, like, maybe this sometimes happens with, like, Sunday school servants. Sunday school servants get very caught up in the work that they need to do and in preparing lessons and doing these things. And so maybe they're going to, like, uh, skip the liturgy because they still haven't prepared a lesson or they're going to skip the liturgy because they still have projects and things that they have to get ready for their class that day, Right? which goes against this completely. Like you cannot do the work of God while violating the commandment of God. You know, and this is here what he's trying to make clear. Like God is not just interested in a building. You know, he's not just interested in the work of these people. He wants the people themselves, right? He, like, like he, he wants, he wants the, 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 the people's love and the people's worship. And everything else that the people are doing is an expression of that love and worship to God. It is not because God delights in a building. God can build a building. He doesn't need anyone to build it for him. So wh what he wants is to see that we are doing our work in God for him. We are doing it for him. It is an act of love that we give. Okay? You can kind of like think of it like um, like between, like say, a married couple. Okay? 
Like, let's say a, a husband, he spends hours building something like that's very nice, like and custom for like his wife's birthday. Okay. And he gives it to her. And she's so like thankful for this gift that he gives her. Now, let's say that instead of doing that, okay, um, somebody else builds it and gives it to him. And then he gives it to her. And then she gets the same thing, right? Like she gets the thing. But what she doesn't get is the, l the expression of love from him to her to sacrifice all those hours and time and research and money and whatever it is that went into that in order for him to give it to her, okay? So God is not looking necessarily for just the product, the outcome, right, the result. He wants our effort. This is why we always say, for instance, we don't measure success by the number of people in the church. You know, we don't measure success by the number of people that we're able to attract. We measure success by the effort that we put in. Because in the end, if God wants to bring the people, he will bring the people. Okay? Like, this is, this is up to, to him. He wants to bring the people. We, our job is to do the work. We do whatever work we are capable of doing. We offer it to God. Okay? And we follow his rules. Right? We worship him according to how he said. So if he comes and he says, I want you to keep the day of the Lord, then we keep the day of the Lord. You know, and, and this is why I should not use the reasons like, you know, uh, I'm so busy and, you know, I, I can't and all this. Make a way. Make a way. God himself is saying when it comes even to his own house, when it comes even to the building of his own house, his own tabernacle, right, still keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't work on it on the Sabbath day. Work on it every other day. Do not work on on the Sabbath day because the, the Sabbath day is a day of rest. It is, it is a day of worship for God, not for construction. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So again, regarding the Sabbath, okay, saying just as it, the, the Sabbath is a memorial, it is a reminder of the relationship with God. It's a reminder of the covenant that God made with them. It's a reminder that God is the creator, the one who created the whole world, the whole universe in six days, okay, and rested on the seventh day. So so for us, the Sabbath, the, the day of the Lord that we celebrate on Sunday, is a reminder to us also of all of these things, right? It's a reminder to us that our life does not simply consist of the work week. Our life doesn't simply consist of the money that we have or the career that we have or the pursuits that we have in this life, that this life is temporary, right? So So we have to find balance in life, okay? We have to find a balance. Because clearly we're all extremely busy and more and more career and work consume one's life and, and people don't really respect the idea, like employers typically don't respect the idea that someone doesn't want to work on a Sunday. 
So we have to make this happen. Like I know people who um, made it happen. They found a way to where they could try to, to come to church on Sunday. Um, it's not always possible with some careers. But the idea is, is that we are making that effort. We are trying to find a balance. We are not focusing only on work. We're not focusing only on service. We're fo not focusing only on rest. We're not focusing only on friends or only on family or only on anything. We are saying, what are all the things that are necessary? What are all the things that are important? And we're making time for all those things, right? That's, that's the, the, the way that we should be trying to live. Everything has its time. Notice that God did not tell them um, you're not allowed to do anything else, right? Like w when, when, when God made the day of the Sabbath, it's a day. It's a day out of seven days, right? It's not every day. He didn't say work is, is sinful. No, it's not. But there should be time that we set aside for God. Also here is the actual tablets, the actual tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments, that are written with the finger of God that were given to Moses. So now we're going to see what happens when Moses, after all this, spending all this, how, how long did he spend on the mountain? 40 days. 40 days. He spent 40 days on the mountain. Okay. And the people at the bottom were there also for 40 days. Okay. And you can kind of see, like if you look at it kind of in a spiritual sense, the difference between the heavenly life and the earthly life. Right. Both are happening simultaneously. You know, in the last few chapters, we have been focusing on the heavenly life. We've not been focusing at all or know anything about what is happening down on the earthly life at the bottom of the mountain. We've been focusing only on the presence of God, the voice of God, the commandments of God, like all these very lofty things that, you know, Moses being there, it's like he is no longer on earth. You know, we, we, we spoke about at the beginning when he was walking up the mountain and he saw the sapphire stones. Right? Like like representing like the, the heavenly kingdom. Like he is going to a place that is the kingdom of God. It's like the kingdom of God on earth. Okay? And God is, is meeting with him and talking with him and all this. And so during this time, he is completely oblivious to everything outside. There's, there's nothing else in his world at that point except for God and what God is telling him. Right? There is no other concerns. There's nothing else. I mean, imagine if you were in such a place, right? Like with God's presence physically there. We're not going to be thinking about other things. So now it's like he is descending. He's going back to the earth and, try and seeing what is the now the distinction, the difference between the way that the people on the earth think and the way they act compared to how the heavenly, the experience of the earthly versus the heavenly. So since now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, come Make us gods that shall go before us. For, for as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Okay. So this is like so disturbing. Um, there's a lot of things we can get from this. Okay. Um, number one, they had very little faith and patience. Okay. Because even though Moses made it very clear to them, what was about to happen and that he was going to go up. They didn't know how long it was going to be, okay? But in, a, in, in this amount of time, after 40 days, they said, well, Moses is gone. He's not coming back. He's left us here, so we've got to figure out what to do, okay? In, in that very small amount of time. Um, also, instead of believing in the presence of God, 
invisibly, as God is spirit, they always needed something physical. Something physical, and with Moses not present, it's like, it's like Moses was the representation of God for them. So as long as Moses is present, they feel like, okay, God is present. God is present, Moses is present. Okay, But with Moses not present, and with there being no physical object or anything like that that represents God to them, so they began to feel alone. They said, well, okay, this God that has been coming with us and following, like, what are all the things that God has been giving them even, even, even during these 40 days? For instance, the manna was still coming down from heaven in these 40 days, obviously, because they had to eat. They were still getting water for these 40 days. All the ways that God was sustaining them was still happening in these 40 days. So there was plenty of evidence that God was still present. I mean, this is manna from heaven. is It's not a natural occurrence, okay? So, so even though God was still working and there were signs of his work, but for them, um, they needed something physical. And this was the, the reason behind the second commandment. And this is the difference between the first commandment and the second commandment. The first commandment says, do not worship any other gods. The second commandment is, do not worship God through images. Do not worship God, like do not make an idol of God to worship it. That's the second commandment. So here they said, um, well, Moses is gone, and we, we can't perceive of God, right? We can't see him. So we want a physical manifestation, an idol of God that then we can worship. And, 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 and as though like God is missing, God is not present anymore, and they need to bring him back into, into presence so that they could feel like he is leading them. Okay, and this man, Moses, okay, who led us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him, okay? And Aaron said to them, break off the gold earrings, which are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Okay, so another very disappointing thing is that Aaron is going with this, you know? Aaron, Aaron was the one who, they had a whole thing about, his clothes and what he's going to wear and the, the jewels on his, on his breastplate and all the onyx stones and like all the things that we talked about in detail about all the things like this was the high priest like he's the one who who is actually a symbol and representation of Christ he is the one who is to go into the holy of holies in the tabernacle he is the one who who who, who represents the redemption of God to the people he is the one who offers a sacrifice on behalf of the people but he is now, whenever the people are coming to him and saying, well, we don't know where Moses is, come and make for us this, his response is, okay, uh, just give me, give me the stuff that I need to make this golden calf. We don't hear him saying no. We don't hear him saying, just let's wait some more or let's pray and ask God to help. We don't hear anything like that. All we hear is, give me your earrings, okay? So all the people broke off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So see how they are referring to it? It is not here that they are worshiping another God. They are worshiping God, but through the idol. They, they, are, they are believing that this is actually, this calf is the God that brought them out of Egypt. 
because they can't they don't understand what it means to believe in something by faith some th someone who is invisible they can't understand this concept of being invisible and this is why this um, problem continued um, in among the Israelites for hundreds of years this is why the all the pagan nations that lived around Israel had such a um, had such a negative influence on them because all of the other nations had gods, physical gods, and we've talked about this before many times about how they tried to use the Ark of the Covenant and to take it with them and from place to place as though it is their like their token, their, their, their reminder of God's presence with them just as the other nations would bring idols of their gods. So also the Israelites always wanted this. And so it was very easy for them to fall into idol worship um, and, and, and to be deceived by this. And again, why God gave them this commandment very strictly in the second commandment so when Aaron saw it he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said tomorrow is a feast to the Lord okay tomorrow is a feast to the Lord what does Saint Ephraim of Syrian say he says for Moses was for a little removed from before them that the calf that was brought th that was that was before them might appear that they might worship it openly also for they had been secretly worshiping it in their hearts you read it again for Moses was for a little removed from before them that the calf that was before them might appear that they might worship it openly for they had been secretly worshiping it in their hearts meaning that all this time there was a problem and and we could see we could see that there was a lack of faith among the people. We could see that they were very stubborn. We could see that they were very quick to doubt God. Um, but here it made it absolutely clear that there is a problem. That the moment that they, they experience some kind of hardship or the absence of Moses, that they immediately go to this. Okay, um, The absence of Moses, it revealed that they relied too much on his presence and they were spiritually immature and they didn't trust God. Um, but this made it very clear. Now, I don't want to condemn them so quickly because we do this every day. Okay, we do this every day. Whenever we feel that we are stressed, whenever we feel like we are anxious about something, and instead of placing our faith in God and, and trust that his ability to take care of it in the right way and that he is in control of the situation, we maybe go to gods, to, to our own gods to relieve our stress, whatever those gods might happen to be. And again, even though they had signs that God was still present, like I said, with the men and the water and all of that, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, the things that God was always sending them all the time to remind them of his presence, even though God is clearly present, and yet maybe we turn away from him and instead we worship the idols and we go to other things that, um, that to bring us comfort because we do not see the comfort of God, because we don't believe. You know, and... and um, in 2 Corinthians, St. Paul, he says, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Which, which truly, if we did walk by faith, not by sight, then this would be manifested in our actions, in our decisions, in our attitudes, um, that everything that we do, we do it with a faith in the existence and the love of God in all things. As opposed to maybe being so quick to be afraid, so quick to lose faith, so quick to blaspheme, so quick to curse, so quick to lust, so quick to lie and to steal and whatever it is that we do, so quick to be inebriated, so quick to want to escape 
because we cannot handle the situation that we are in for whatever reason, because we do not trust that God is present in it. And if we truly believe that God was present in it, then we would have no stress. We, we, would, we would really just believe that God is taking care of everything. And that even though there are things obviously we would prefer did not happen or prefer that did happen, but in the end we put our trust that God is working things out for the best. Okay, And so here, not only did they make this calf, but Aaron declared that tomorrow is a feast. Okay, Tomorrow is a feast. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So here, this was not just like a reverent uh, celebration of this calf. This was like char categorized by indulgence and gluttony and drunkenness. When it says, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. St. Jerome, he says about this, first the belly is crammed, then the other members are roused. The toil of so many days perished through the fullness of a single hour. So they're having like a sensual celebration. It is, it is, it is not just like some like respectful, reverent type of worship and offering sacrifices. So they are mixing the idea of the worship of God and offering these offerings and peace offerings, burnt offerings and so on, and, and included with this celebration, right, that they are doing. And the Lord said to Moses, go get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Yes. Um, so was it, was it, was it like common practice for them to have peace offerings and because right now they Moses hasn't come down to tell them about peace offerings and burnt offerings. So is that just common knowledge? Yeah, so a lot of the a lot of the the types of offerings that were offered were already known, but they weren't like formalized in the law yet. Now you see even like Abraham or Noah, they they made offerings at an altar, right? They made they they offered animals like like sacrificed animals, right? Even though there was no formal law but it was something that was known that god had told them about previously even though it wasn't necessarily directly recorded like in the scripture okay um so so here we see god is now like now that the lord is done speaking with moses he tells him go get down because those people because god knows so those people have corrupted themselves so again, while God is speaking with Moses up on the mountain, there's all of this stuff happening at the bottom. Okay. Also, what's interesting is he says your people, right? Like he, he, didn't, he didn't say these are my people. At this point, it's Moses's people. Okay, um, whom you brought out. They have corrupted themselves. They are. They have become corrupted because of this sin. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Right, so, so remember when right before Moses was going up on the mountain, he made it very, very, very clear to them. Okay, what is it they should do? And that no one should try to come up the mountain and that he's going to go up and he's going to come back down. He reiterated it many times, right? And so here God is saying they have quickly turned aside, you know, quickly. Like what the, the, the thing that was told to them, they quickly forgot. They quickly, you know, did their own thing. 
which again, maybe we are guilty of. You know, we, we, we know the commandments of God, we, we hear them all the time, and yet maybe we are quick to turn aside. Maybe after we repent and confess sin, we, are, we quickly turn aside. We, we, we go again. Um, and so God is explaining to them, you know, and saying to the, and he, they, are, they are saying, well, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. They're attributing that to this golden calf. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. Okay, what do you think is the reason that God said this? And do you think he was truly overcome with the emotion of anger toward them? How, how, what, what is the motivation for God to say this? So if you, if you put a human being in a situation like this, and a person says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. We kind of have an image of that person as that they're just like a crazed, angry, um, just ready to destroy. So, uh, you know, like without 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 mercy, kind of that's kind of this talk. Right. Um, and he's saying not only I'm, he said, I'm going to destroy them, but you I'm going to make you into a great nation. Like God is going to find a way to make Moses into a great nation still. Um, but those people, he's had enough of them. They have disobeyed him too many times. They have been too um, too rebellious against him. So he's going to consume them. So what do you think? A prophecy about Christ's redemption. Where like Moses is like a symbol of Christ. Okay. I mean, you could look at it like that, yeah? I'm saying Moses is like a symbol of Christ, so he's going to make him into be a great nation. Okay, but there's but but what is the there are many times actually in the scripture where God speaks like this. Hmm? But if he is saying this, what is his motivation? Like, what is he? What is he? Because he's he's gonna change his mind. Okay, so when when Moses is gonna pray on behalf of the people and God, it's he says he's gonna relent from what he was going to do. So, so if God had already, if if God had already purposed in Himself that He was going to do something, He's going to do it, right? It, it, it's not it, how how do you change the mind of God in that sense? Like, like it's not like like when when you present something to change someone's mind, it's like you are giving them information they didn't have already. You're convincing them of something that they didn't know already, but that God knows. So. The scripture, when it speaks like this about God, when God speaks about like this about himself, okay, he is using human terms to help us as humans to understand how he feels about things. Like So he's trying to express here that he's extremely dissatisfied with what's happening. Okay, He's extremely upset with what's happening. What they are doing is very wrong, and he wants them to see that what they are doing is very wrong. But it's not the passion of anger like a human being has. It is not like an uncontrolled, um, violent anger. Just like when, when the Lord, um, he overturned the tables of the money changers. Again, it was not like a violent, out-of-control rage. It was, a, it was actually a disciplined decision and choice meant to, to teach and meant to you know, 
elicit a certain reaction, okay? And the reaction here is repentance. The reaction here from Moses is to intercede for them. Because again, if God truly wanted to destroy them, he didn't have to tell Moses this. If God really wanted to destroy them, he just destroyed them. He doesn't, he doesn't have to inform Moses of what he's doing. And clearly, there's a lot of things that he didn't even tell Moses, all from the beginning. You know, similarly to like the story of when God wanted to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he, he chose to go to Abraham and he told him, I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did he do this? Because he wanted Abraham to intercede. And Abraham did intercede for them. But in the end, there was not enough righteous people in the city to avoid its destruction. And so instead, God led the righteous people, Lot and his family, out of the city before it was destroyed. Right? So, so this was Abraham's intercession. Here, this is Moses' intercession. He's going to Moses and he is telling him, these people have corrupted themselves and I'm going to destroy them. Okay? So what did Moses respond? It says that Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand? Okay? So, so this is the beginning of the intercession of Moses, that Moses is pleading with God. He's asking God, interceding on behalf of the people for God to save them and not to carry out what is it that he had said. Okay? And actually, he gives three points, three reasons why God should not carry out what he had said. The first, he mentions it here. He says what? He reminds God that actually he is the one who brought them out of Egypt. So like you already brought them out of Egypt and had planned all of this out and brought up to this point. Why then, if you brought them out with such a mighty hand, why would you destroy them now? You know, you, you, you already led them to this point. Then he goes on. He says, why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn, your f turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. So the second reason was that if you kill them now, then the Egyptians, after they hear that this happened, then they're just going to say, why was God so insistent on bringing them out of Egypt just so that he could destroy them in the wilderness? Again, it doesn't make sense, right? So that's the second reason Moses says to him. Then the third reason, he says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the third reason was reminding God of the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which said they would become, they would be the ancestors of a mighty nation, and that is this people right here. So if they are destroyed, then how are they going to be a mighty nation, right? So in the end, God is going to relent, okay? And he is not going to carry out what he said. But again, he said it because he wanted Moses to intercede. He wanted to express his displeasure about what was happening. He wanted Moses to intercede for them. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people, okay? And Moses turned... And went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, on one side and on the other side they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, 
and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Okay. Here you see the difference between like the anger of God and the anger of man. Okay. The anger of God expresses dissatisfaction with our behavior and is a call to repentance. Okay? But the anger of man is just self-destructive. Because the idea here that Moses breaks these tablets, there was no benefit to that. Like nothing good came of that. Like God had literally just gave him these tablets and he made it with the finger of God. They were miraculously made. Okay? Miraculously made. And and you take these tablets and when you see you, when, because you're upset, instead of responding kind of constructively, even if you're going to rebuke and even if you're going to be angry, but but you you took out you did you, you you turned your anger into something that was just kind of um like like not beneficial. There was no, nothing good that came from breaking the tablets. They had to make the tablets again. Okay? So Moses, after spending the 40 days in the presence of God, being sustained by God, hearing the word of God, and so on, and again, living in this like heavenly reality, the moment that he returns to earth and he sees the sin that is in the earth and the depravity that is in it, he immediately loses his peace and becomes angry and violent. You know, it says something about us, like, when we are surrounded by sin and wickedness and depravity, it is so easy for us to be affected by it. So easy for us. But when you spend, like this is why when people say like they spend a long time in the monastery, for instance, away from the world, away from all the trouble that is in the world, they feel refreshed. You know, you feel like you're in a, in a different world, in a different reality there. And then when you come back to the world, it's like you're, you feel like it's very different. It's it's you 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 there's a stark difference between the two. You feel like the weight of the world, the sin of the world that you don't feel there in the monastery. Okay, so um, yeah, comment. Okay. Uh, the question is: Do we actually change the mind of God through intercessions, or is the act of asking for intercessions for us and God will do what He already willed it to do? So we have to define what does it mean to change the mind of God? What does it mean to change the mind of God? There is a difference between like the foreknowledge of God and the predestination in the sense that what? Some people say, well, there is no free will because everything that we do is already determined. Okay, But the response to that is, no, there is free will even if God knows what it is we will choose. And I like to use this kind of analogy to kind of express it. Let's say you watch a movie, okay, for the first time, and you watch how all the characters, everything that they do in the movie, everything that they say, and the whole thing from beginning to end. Okay. Um, you obviously didn't know what was going to happen, and you didn't control anybody. Okay. It all kind of played out the way that it did. Then you, you start at the beginning again, and you watch the movie a second time. This time, you know everything that is going to happen, but you still have any control of anything. 
just as just no control. You are not determining the actions of any person in that movie, even though you know a hundred percent of what exactly that they are going to do. Okay, so God knows what it is that we are going to do, but He doesn't change or doesn't force us to do anything specifically. So when we speak about changing the mind of God, God already knows what he, what's going to happen. Like God already knows how we are going to react and how he's going to react to us and what we're going to say and what he's going to say. He already knows all that. But it doesn't change that the reality is is that we are making an active choice which is affecting the future. So so if you want to talk about it like do our prayers matter? Our prayers matter. Do our, do our prayers result in a change? Yes. But but to say that we are changing the mind of God, we just have to be careful what we mean. It is not that God had already decided to do this, and then now suddenly it's like, oh, uh, i got to have to change my plan now because of something. It's not like that. God already knows how it's all going to play out. God knew that when he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he knew they were going to sin against him. He knew that the, 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 the serpent was going to deceive them. He knew what he was going to do after that, and so on and so on and so on. But he, but he gives each of us free will so that, again, even though he knows how we will respond, what we will choose, he does not influence that choice or control that choice such that we would have no free will. Okay? So, so, so yes, prayer matters. Intercession matters. It makes a difference. Okay? So we can't say that, well, God has already determined every action, and so what's, what's the point? What's the point of me taking any step? That's actually what we call monergism. We have spoken about it before. It's a heresy. There are, there are some, uh, some Christian traditions that believe in monergism. Monergism means one work. Mono, one, and erg means work. One work, meaning God is the only one who works. Nobody does anything. Everything is completely determined by God, and so we have no free will, and there's no point in even doing anything. This ties into the concept of what's called irresistible grace. Irresistible grace means that when God chooses to grace someone or to give grace or to bring salvation to someone, that that person is going to be saved even against their own will because their will is irrelevant. The will of human beings is irrelevant. Everything is completely determined by God. He will save whom he wants to save, and he will condemn whom he wants to condemn. And even if I don't want to be saved and God chooses me for salvation, I'm going to be saved against my will. Because, again, God is the only one who works, right? So we reject that. We believe that salvation is a cooperation between us and God. God offers us grace, and we do our part to accept and to receive that grace and to work with that grace. So the same is true with prayer. The same is true with this intercession. You know, actually, in, in some places in the scripture, God asks, like a prophet, for instance, to intercede for another person so that they would be saved. Like an example is Job. At the end of the book of Job, when, you know, there's these three men that had been kind of like uh, misguided um, in, in criticizing Job for the whole book. Um, and, and by the end of the book, God is upset with them. And he tells them, go to Job and he will pray for you and I will accept his intercession for you. Why did he say that? Because obviously the intercession of Job mattered. Okay? And that without the intercession of Job, then, then the outcome would have been different. Right? But of course God knew already that all of that was going to happen. So definitely our prayers matter um, and, 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 and asking for the prayers of the saints, seeking intercession from the saints, like asking prayers from one another, all of these things matter. Um, how exactly they matter? Like how would it have been different if we had done it differently? I don't know. And uh, No one can know the answer to that question. But we know that God said to ask. Yeah, ask, seek, knock. He wouldn't have told us to ask, seek, and knock 
if it was irrelevant. You know? He wouldn't have said, knock on the door will be open for you. So he, if, 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 it made no, if it made no difference, he, you know, he wouldn't have asked us to do it. What is, what is going to happen because I knocked? That if I hadn't knocked, what would have happened? He, God does not reveal. Okay. From a symbolic perspective, like from a prophetic perspective, um, breaking these tablets um, of the covenant is a foreshadowing of the law of Christ, of the coming of Christ. And in John 1.17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Okay? It's kind of like this was a symbolic representation of when incarnation comes, when the Lord Jesus Christ is incarnate. He is the fulfillment of the law, and he is the one who fulfills the law in the spirit, not according to the letter. Right? So it is like breaking the requirements of the law. Okay? From a symbolic perspective. St. Augustine, when he was speaking about um, kind of a spiritual interpretation of um, when the Lord told the people to remove the stone of Lazarus after he was buried and for four days in the tomb, and, and he's coming to raise him from the dead. And so the Lord says, remove the stone, okay? And removing the stone, by the way, is an example of the work of man, right? God could have raised Lazarus without telling anyone to move the stone, like, what was the greater miracle, the raising of Lazarus or the moving of the stone? He could have moved the stone himself, but he told the people to move the stone, right? This is an example of the cooperation. Like, we do the part that we can do. I can move the stone, but I can't raise someone from the dead. But God can raise someone from the dead. So here, he's, he's St. Augustine, when he's speaking about this, this is what he says. He says, what mean then the words, take away the stone? Preach grace, for the Apostle Paul calls himself a minister of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter, he says, kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter that kills is like the stone that crushes. Take away, he said, the stone. Take away the weight of the law and preach grace. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily righteousness should be by the law. But the scripture has concluded all are under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. He's not saying that the law is bad, actually, but the purpose of the law was to show us our sinfulness because the law did not come with it, the power to obey the law. You know, it's just, it's a statement of commandments and those statement of commandments judge us. And, and, and as we realize, and as the Jews realize that they are unable to follow those commandments, right? So it is a constant, stands in constant judgment of them that they are sinners. And that's actually what the law was intended to show. It shows us the standard of God, but it also shows us that we are unable to meet the standard, which is why we are in need of salvation. The, the, these laws should have made the people looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, knowing that he will save them from their sins because they are unable to fill the law to perfection. And, and so the idea of the breaking of these tablets symbolically represents the idea of the coming of the era of grace which is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in us to give us the power to fulfill the commandments of God, not just to stand as being subject and under judgment from those commandments. Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. Okay, he took this golden calf, burned it, ground it to powder, 
put it in the water and made everyone drink the water. Okay, what is this a reference to? In Numbers chapter 5, um, there is a, it speaks about a law concerning a woman who is unfaithful to her husband or accused of being unfaithful to her husband. So if a, if a, if a husband believed that his wife was being unfaithful to him with another man, the priest would take the dust of the ground that is in the tabernacle and he would put it in water and she would drink this water with the dust. Okay? And if she is guilty, then her belly would swell and her thigh would rot and she would be unable to conceive children. Okay, this is a, as a punishment to her for the sin that she had committed. This is if she is guilty. But if she is not guilty, okay, then nothing would happen to her, and she would have no curse. So this was like a way that God would reveal the truth in these kinds of situations. So uh, that, that, that law hadn't, hadn't come into play yet. Okay, so I mean that hadn't been revealed yet. But, but there is a stark similarity between these two things. That here it's like God is saying, um, drink this for the curse of those people who are guilty of this. Like you will be corrupted because of the sin that you committed by worshiping this idol. So he took it, he ground it to powder, and he made them drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? You know, because Aaron is the one who could have stopped this. If the people came to him and they said, we want to do this, Aaron could have stopped and said, no. Aaron is the spiritual leader of the people. So he is responsible for what happens to them. So Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. So, okay, so first of all, Aaron is the one who has to be held accountable because he is the high priest. He gave in to the desires of the people, even though it was sinful, in order to appease them. And he didn't accept any accountability, but instead he blamed them. When Moses came to talk to him, he blamed the people. Who does it sound like? It sounds like Adam, and it sounds like somebody else who blamed the people whenever he was accused of sin. King Saul. King Saul, right? When he was, God told him, and Samuel the prophet told him, like, destroy the, a certain people and destroy all of their sheep and destroy everything. And Saul didn't do so. He kept the sheep. And when Samuel the prophet came, he told him, what is the sound of sheep that I hear? And he's like, yeah, the people wanted to keep them so that we could uh, offer them as a sacrifice. You know, like, so he, he put it on the people, right? Just as here, Aaron is also putting it on the people. He's saying, well, the people came to me and they said that they, 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 they didn't know what happened to you, right? But obviously it was his fault. He's the one who said, bring the earrings and bring the gold and bring this, right? So a religious leader, he should be the one standing up for the truth, even if it makes him unpopular with the people, right? And this is the thing that Aaron didn't do. He didn't, he didn't, he, even if he were to be criticized, even if he was to be rejected, right, he, he should have stood up and he said, no, this is a sin, we can't do this, right? His role is to teach them the truth and not just to give them whatever they want. Also, the fact that, that he's saying, and this calf came out, like as though like, like he just, like it just jumped out at him, like, no, it says earlier at the time when he called them to do it, to give them the gold, it says that he crafted it, he engraved it, he made it, right? So he formed it himself 
And now here, instead of saying so, he just said it came out. Um, now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, because, because they were essentially acting in a very lewd uh, way, in an obscene way, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp. And let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So this the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Okay, so what is happening, right? Moses is saying, who are the people who are on the Lord's side? Who are the people who um, are rejecting this, right? And so the Levites, they came, and they stood with Moses. So then Moses told them, go and kill the people that are actively sinning. <coughs> so they went with their swords, and they killed 3,000 people, Okay. St. Ephraim the Syrian, this is what he says about this scene. <coughs> he says, The sons of Levi, who rallied to Moses with drawn swords, attacked them. But the sons of Levi did not know whom they should kill, because those who had worshipped mixed with those who had not worshipped. But the one for whom distinctions are easy to make separated those who committed idolatry from those who had not, so that the innocent would be grateful that their innocence had not escaped the notice of the just one and the guilty would be brought to justice because their crime had not escaped the judge. So St. Ephraim is saying is that somehow God communicated to them who is it that was sinning, who is the one who was, who was fell into this sin, and that they were purged essentially from the, um, from the, the community. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man has opposed his son and his brother. Okay, so this consecration, right, this consecration of the Levites for the priesthood, I this is what it's saying here. Consecrate yourselves. You are consecrated to me. The Levites are consecrated to me because of this that they did, because they kept themselves from the sin and they executed justice on the people. Gregory the Great, he says, Therefore we must consider well when we desist from chiding the wicked. How sinful is it to maintain peace with the very wicked if so great a prophet offered to God, as it were in sacrifice, the fact that he had aroused the enemies of the wicked against himself in behalf of the Lord. This is the reason that the tribe of Levi, when it took up the sword and passed through the midst of the host and did not spare the sinners who were to be smitten, is said to have consecrated its hand to God. Right, so God rewarded the Levites by this act of obedience and service that they did. Because when Moses called and said, whoever is with the, on the Lord's side, they are the ones who came forward um, on his side. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. So again, you see the intercession of Moses 
and, and, and really the love of Moses for his people. He really felt himself as though he is responsible for them. He doesn't want the people to perish. Okay, God ar- already had wanted to destroy them, and Moses interceded for them the first time so that he re- God relented from what he was going to do. And here, he wants to go even more, seeing now with his own eyes the sin that they had committed, and he wants God to forgive them. So he's saying to God, if you are going to condemn them, condemn me with them. You know, condemn me with them. And so Moses is interceding for them. And God's response was, whoever it is who has committed sin is the one who will be condemned. You know, so he's saying, I'm not going to condemn you, Moses, when you have not done this. Okay, whoever, whoever is the one who sins is the one who will be condemned. Finally, it says, now therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. So there was some consequences that happened for the people and a plague that happened on them because of what they did. Um, And God is now telling Moses to continue to lead them because he is still, God is still leading them to the promised land. Even with all of this, God is still leading them to the promised land. And And we see that Everything that is happening from the beginning of the story in Exodus up until now is God's continual desire to want to bless the people and their continual refusal and rejection of the blessing. This is exactly what's happening. From the very beginning, God continues to want to rescue them. They're stubborn against being rescued. God wants to give them good things and tells them what to do. God, they reject this. God tells them the commands that are going to protect them, they reject it. Even here, God, like the people are rejecting God and worshiping this golden calf and so on. And even with all of this, God is still leading them to the promised land. And what's going to happen when they get to the promised land? They're not going to want to go in, right? So it's like God is constantly blessing, blessing, blessing. And why is it that we don't receive the blessing? It's because we reject it. It's not because God does not offer it. So it's something for us to, to ponder. And um, God willing, we'll talk more about that um, next time. Any questions or comments before we conclude? Yes. Sorry? So the, the pagan nations, they worship different kinds of animals. Um, so it was very common for them to have like a specific animal that they would worship. Like the ancient Egyptians, for instance, they worshiped a cat um, or the bull or other animals. So um, they, made, they made this as a calf. I don't know specifically why it would have been a calf versus another animal, to be honest. Yeah. Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your mercy, O Lord. We ask for the forgiveness of our sins. We ask, O God, that you would lead us to a life of holiness and purity before you, a life of innocence, and that you would forgive us our sins whenever we turn to the left or to the right. We thank you, O God, because you are patient and merciful with us. Help us, O Lord, just as you were patient with the Israelites who continually rebelled against you and resisted your commandments. Be merciful, O Lord, with us and lead us, O Lord, to a place of comfort and consolation. Teach us, O God, how to live a life in the midst of this wicked world, a life that is a life filled with light and joy and peace and obedience and purity to you. Strengthen us, O Lord, your church, and strengthen all your people and all your servants, and guide, O Lord, everything that we do according to your will. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, 
Hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion of the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit. <laughs> 